This episode of the Expression Radio podcast was made possible through sponsorship provided by the AIG, the Australian Institute of Geoscientists. To learn more about the AIG, the programs it supports, or to become a member, please go to aig.org.au. That is aig.org.au. Welcome to Exploration Radio. Our guest today is Attila Pentec. Fifteen years ago, Attila and I both started our careers in this industry as summer students working for Wallbridge Mining, a junior exploration company based in Sudbury, Canada. Since then, our careers have taken very different paths. Most of my career has involved jumping between roles every two to three years for different multinational mining companies. Attila, on the other hand, has worked for Wallbridge for the better part of the last decade and a half. In that time, he went from starting as a master's student to completing his PhD with the company to working as an exploration geologist, then a resource geologist, a mine manager, a project manager, a business development geologist, and now he heads up the exploration department as vice president exploration. Our industry has plenty of people that jump between jobs every three to five years. I'm an example of one. But it is rare to find someone like Attila that has stayed with the company for such a long time. Even rarer still is someone that has done it at the start of their career with a junior explorer. Junior companies are not usually renowned for having established programs that develop and nurture graduates. Maybe the reason that Attila stayed with Walbridge for so long has something to do with the culture that the company has created, where loyalty is rewarded by opportunity. Over the 15 years that I've known Attila, I've always wanted to ask him why he chose to stay with Walbridge for so long. Why did he leave the company and work elsewhere? Personally, I think it's a question that we all face at some point. When is it time to leave a job? Is it better to switch jobs to chase opportunities? Or stay and show loyalty so you're provided them? Today, I finally get to ask Attila that question. Why he decided to take the career road less traveled. This episode of Exploration Radio was made possible by the support of the Minerals Council of Australia. Find out why there is more to Australian mining and join the Friends of Australian Mining Supporter Network by visiting minerals.org.au. That's minerals.org.au. Attila, welcome to Exploration Radio. Yeah, thanks, Amada. It's an honor to be here. It's fun. So I have to thank you on, on the air because you were one of the people that first got in contact with us when we started the podcast and you were pretty excited. So thanks a lot for being a fan for so long. Yeah, thanks. No, it's uh, I've, I've started following it right away. And you know, I was really happy to see the episode with your uncle because I remembered your stories when you told me how you guys turned pee into, into drinking water in the desert <laughs> and he taught you a lot of these uh, useful skills. So <laughs> yeah, that's it was fun. good to uh, hear him and, and tell the story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's an episode that a lot of people like. Yeah, the personal kind of connection there as well. Yeah, yeah. So I should say, our listeners might not know, but you and I have known each other for a while because we both started our career at the same time in a company called Wallbridge in Sudbury. Yeah, yeah, that was back in 2005. That was my first year in Canada, actually, and, and just started my master's thesis. So that's kind of how I uh, got to go there. Because you were studying in Hungary at the time, and then you moved here for a field season. Exactly, yeah. So I was studying in Hungary. And we kind of have a different academic system that is kind of like the old German system where you study for five years and then you get your master's after that. So there, there was no BSc and MSc and all that. But you get the chance to do different undergrad uh, research projects and then already do a lot of good studies. 
And so I did a couple of those. And then the professor was just, well, how about uh, you start a master's thesis in the Canadian project? And they were like, oh. Wow, that's just amazing. You know, like you hear about Sudbury and and Abitibi and and Canadian Shield all the time, and in school it keeps coming up, and or geology, and of course the you know the large impact and everything. So that was just an amazing opportunity to to come here because in Canada it was sorry in, in Hungary it's all Miocene volcanics, and if we have any Paleozoic rocks, they're they're like a tiny outcrop, and it's a holy shrine, and everybody goes there because it's like the oldest rock around. That was a great opportunity. And then there's also, obviously, there's not much exploration going on in Hungary at the time. Definitely not that kind of landscape or in the middle of the bush like in Canada and Sudbury. So that was a lot of fun. And then, of course, meeting a lot of people like yourself from all over the place. So that master's turned into a PhD then. So that's why I kept going back every summer. Uh, It was sort of a nice gig. So Wabridge supported these theses. So in the summers, I was there for three, four months doing a lot of field work doing a bit of my own field work, collecting samples and all that, and then went home to Hungary and did teaching and lab part of things. Interesting thing that I found about Wallbridge is that they used to do this, you know, that summer that we started working, there was people like yourself who was there doing field work for their research. There were people from all over the world, essentially. There were some German students. There were some students from BC, all of these different things. I think the company made a conscious effort to have this kind of integration of people that weren't just bush geologists or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, some of it was sort of a creative way of finding good geos because, you know, at the time... Obviously, 2005, 6, 7, there was really very little geologists available, very few. And somebody coming out of school was already asking for 350 bucks a day sort of thing. So there were, things were booming. So Robert started this approach of attracting European students, lining them up with visas or, or whatever, and then bring them over. And then either it turns into a master project on one of the showings or something like that. Or if not, then it's still a really good opportunity for both. Like, you know, they get quality students that are passionate and they really want to be there. And it's a huge opportunity for them and, and they really enjoy it. And then, of course, for the students, it's like being able to work yeah, in, yeah. in Canada. It's, it's amazing, yeah. I mean, I think it's a great idea from that point, right? That the company got, they had students that could tackle problems. And if something good came out of it, great, it could become a project. The student gets something out of it and the company gets something out of it. And I think from my perspective, when you learned in Hungary, you had different skills to what are taught in Canadian universities. So having someone from that university, you brought a, a lot more fundamentally different background than from what I was learning in university at the time. Absolutely, yeah, 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 exactly. Well, and for us, it, it was also a steep learning curve in terms of you can't just take any kind of hammer and expect to be able to sample an outcrop that's totally smoothly glaciated and all that. And, and yeah, just the sheer age of these rocks, that's very different from what we're dealing with at home. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, it's funny you say that because that summer you and I were on the same field team. And I remember this realization you had about the hammer thing. (laughs) (laughs) I think on like day one, outcrop one, it's like, I think we have the wrong hammer for this job. Well, and just uh, like peeling back moss was always just so much fun. Like you you basically, uh, you know, you go into this jungle and it's like a carpet. You can roll back the moss and then uh, expose the outcrops. So it's, yeah, exciting times in the field. Yeah. So one of the questions I always had is you obviously had a very academic training did you want to get into more of the mineral exploration side and and away from the academic side yeah i'm always i was always a pretty practical and pragmatic guy and the academia sort of developed yeah it was exciting so turning a master project into a phd and being able to study these deposits but even the studies were pretty practical so it was really trying to solve questions that how do we use this in exploration and, and how do these things form and it was sort of a novel approach 
So in Sudbury, instead of looking at the magmatic nickel deposits, so there's these copper PG rich ores that are really far away from the historically mined areas. They can be up to a kilometer away. And, and there's a lot of hydrothermal input there and components and you know, remobilization. So it was definitely a very exciting topic to study. But I always had this bug in me. Like the, I was always sort of a, an explorer and discoverer and from my childhood. Like I always wanted to be an archaeologist actually for the longest time. Still like that's my hobby. So whenever I can, I go and look for stuff. And, and your father as well is a pretty mad archaeologist. Obviously I, I inherited that from him. Like I grew up every weekend. We were out somewhere either collecting fossils or collecting Neanderthal tools or Roman coins and whatnot. And I always had that fascination that this has been here for 2000 years and I'm the first person to pick it up and actually see it again after whoever, some, some, some idiot lost it there at the time. So, <laughs> yeah, so I always had this in me that I want to discover stuff. And, you know, that's what is really a passion of mine up to this day is to uh, go out there and discover. So like if you look at what you did in Wallbridge when you joined, you did a number of technical roles as you went through. You were project geologist and a senior geologist. When the company had something small into production, you did kind of a technical role there as well. So you were pretty technically focused when you started, which is a good yeah. marriage of your yeah. academic training into your practical kind of job. Exactly. And then I would say as a VP exploration, I'm still pretty technical and I like to stay close to the rocks and I always like getting the quick logs in the morning and check out the cross sections and see what we've hit and then I try to make it up to the site whenever I can I spend a few days with the geos and I really enjoy the discussions there and seeing the rocks so I'm still pretty technical but yeah as, as you're saying like over the years I learned a lot of technical skills I've done resource geology resource estimates and whatnot so I think it's worth mentioning some of the roles you did because they are really diverse yeah so picking up from where we were so doing this master's and PhD and, and being here in the summers for several summers the job was actually pretty similar it was a lot of prospecting and trenching and then you know some of the basic stuff but I always enjoyed you know washing outcrops with the high pressure hose and all that stuff so and then yeah and then when I became pro Project geologist, then obviously I was able to start planning the programs myself. That was a lot of fun. And then moving up as senior geologist, then yeah, I did a lot of sort of resource estimates in-house for the company and then doing a lot of like technical due diligence. So we reviewed dozens and dozens of projects, hundreds actually, different commodities. So starting off as a nickel copper PG explorer, you know, a lot of it was that, but then sort of in the down cycle. We started looking at other things as well and then really shifted our focus into gold. And so did a lot of reviews like that. Technical reports are, are fine. That's okay. But we always went to the raw data and then really model it ourselves and figure out what are the fatal flaws and is this going to be mineable and, and all that. So I gained a lot of experience that way that, to understand what really makes a deposit and then how do you turn a nice intersection into actually a producing asset. As part of your roles, you did work in quote-unquote production to some degree as well. Yes, it was kind of an interesting time there. So, so I was doing a resource estimate on one of these projects that we had. And for those of you who've done resources, you kind of know it's a bit like you lock yourself into a room and then for a few weeks you're just there like looking at search ellipses and geostats <laughs> and the block models and like become a zombie and then you come out of it a few weeks later <laughs> and uh, hopefully with a, with a resource. Like you're totally just focused on that. And then suddenly my CEO and the VPX came in and, uh, well, how about you go up to uh, Broken Hammer, our open pit, and we want you to be the acting mine manager. It was sort of uh, the last three, four months of the open pit production. And I knew the deposit really well because that's what I did my master's on. And that was Project Geo as well for it. So I kind of saw it from 
resource drilling through PFS, and then we brought it into production. And then I lost track with it for a couple of years. Uh, I wasn't really involved in the production side of things. But then they brought me back for the last four months that because it was really turning into a PG deposit, there was barely any copper anymore. So we had like 0.1, 0.2% copper. You can barely see it. And it was more of a PG rich ore. That was just a crazy change from one week to the other. Like I say, being totally immersed in search ellipses and then, and then going and, and actually managing contractors and dealing with trucks and tons and uh, great control. And I had to learn all that, obviously, from scratch. Like I I had never worked in a producing environment. and Did you like it? Yeah, it was interesting. Like to me, because I'm sort of an explorer and, and really that's my passion, the exploration, I found that that four months was a very good experience and it, it was amazing to learn all that stuff. But I, I, I definitely realized that you know, production geology or production role, Iron Month is, is not really what I'm super interested in. For me, it was personally a very neat experience to see it go from master's thesis to resource drilling to finally see it being mined out. And then I actually remember, you know, all the drill holes, like, oh, this is where drill, you know, all of 110 came through or whatever. And then, oh, look at it. This is actually how it looks like now in, in the open pit. So it's, it was a very exciting experience that way. And there's always this sort of, in an open, well, in a mine scenario, there's always this day-to-day excitement that, oh, you know, what are we going to hit or where is it going to go? And just the whole act, being in the middle of the action. So that's fun. But definitely, technically, it's not that challenging, obviously. Like, so especially in open pit, there's not much you can really do about it. Like it's all, the open pit is already there. You're committed to this is what we're going to mine. So now it's really just great control from day-to-day, like sample the blast holes and then, okay, this is where the ore waste boundary is. So... It's really the additional things that came with it that I had to learn, like the managing people, managing. We had to keep sending more to the mill, keep it fed. And then so you have to plan ahead a a week of how much am I going to. And then you had to learn these blasting schedules. You can't just blast stuff all over the place. Then you kind of have to do it logical. (laughs) Like you can't blast it on top of the other thing. And so it's a lot of these processes I had to learn and the great control. Mm-hmm. But I think like one of the things that I've found like working in open pit is you get a better sense of how do you like pay for everything, the day-to-day economics. And it's so oh. much work. <laughs> I can't yeah, believe it. So like, really? You can see, like you said, like blasting schedules. I remember if you had a wrong blast or a wrong schedule, you could see the immediate effect in like the mill having an issue for like the next four or five days or whatever it is. And you go, oh, well, you know, we used to make a million dollars a day in the mill and now we're going to lose $4 million because of- Yeah, because you're too high grade or too low grade and the recoveries aren't that good. Yeah, so there's a lot of these kind of things that really builds well on this due diligence or technical review side of things as well, because then having the open pit background as well, then you can put it all together and then really review these projects with an eye of, okay, well, I've seen that. And even though it was a small open pit, it was only two, three years, 300,000 tons uh, pre-high grade ore. But basically the process is the same. Yeah, you just do it for longer. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. So it was a really good learning uh, curve there and kind of a training ground for the whole team and, and the company. It's built credibility for the team that we can do this. It didn't generate a bunch of cash, but it was during the worst times in the industry, uh, 2014, 15. We didn't have to uh, raise money, dilute 
too much. We were able to keep the team together and really provide this experience to the whole team and build a reputation that we can do it safely and we're not messing it up. Because obviously as a junior, there's always people are worried that, oh, these guys are going to go and mine it themselves. Like they're just going to mess it up. Well, especially, I think that's always a challenge when you're an exploration company and you try to develop something. There is the risk that you might stuff it up and sink the whole company along the way, right? Because you're putting a lot of money in. But this is where I think Volbit going down the path of having this small kind of operation. They were perhaps not risking too much. It's not like your CapEx was four or $500 million or anything like that, right? No, no, no. It was a small open pit. So that was the nice thing that uh, you could basically start it up anytime, a little bit of cost, and then you can also close it up. Of course, the metal prices kept nosediving as we were mining, so that didn't really help. But because it was high grade, we, yeah, we could basically do it. And then the other production experience, which was then again totally different, is once we got into this Fenelon, and this is more recently now, so this is two years ago, we did this underground bulk sample, which again, it was a 35,000 ton underground bulk sample. So it was again the same kind of thing where it is a, it, it is basically a test mining scenario where you're doing the same things that you would do in a 400, 500 ton per day underground production. You're just not doing it for many years. You're doing it for nine months or, or, or a year. So we'd put in 2000 meters of development, went down 125 meters, and we took five, six different stopes, sort of testing this long hole mining method, long hole stoping. And again, that was a lot of totally new experience because it's a different commodity. You were dealing with really nuggety, high grade shoots. So you're trying to figure out capping. When you're dealing with intersections like 260 grams over seven meters, you're always worried, like, how well is it going to hang together? How am I going to mine this? And what kind of a capping should I use? So a lot of that was very interesting. And then again, of course, this ongoing block modeling and trying to refine the models. And that was pretty interesting. I think every exploration geologist should spend some time in, in sort of a production environment like this and, and really learn these things. And for our team, like, this was really, again, a beautiful experience to be able to it's an advanced exploration project where you can get both worlds. So it is production, so you, you need to do the day-to-day -day grade control and all that, but it's still an evolving exploration story and then and, and you're still finding new stuff. And so basically it's the same team doing both things. So I think that's, that has been really exciting for the whole team that they can be part of both worlds. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why I wanted to tell you about all these roles that you've done is because of that part, one of the things that's difficult for juniors is that how do you ride out the bottom parts of cycles when it becomes really hard to get funding and things like that? So companies have two options. They can either ask their team to try to do something different, or they can try to change a little bit about what they're doing so they can ride it out. So I think in hindsight, it looks like maybe Wallbridge took the opportunity to kind of retrain their people during the downturn in different ways so then they could get benefit out of it when the market became better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Wallbridge has always been pretty creative in finding financing and kind of ways of how to transform the company and move it forward. And so we also had JVs with, with majors on different projects and that was a good way to build the team and keep it together and you know not dilute the shareholders too much that's why we were able to keep an internal like an in-house technical team together for you know i've been with the company for 10 years but we have other geos that have been there for eight nine years yeah. ten years uh, and even some of the younger guys like they started with us four years ago but they like the culture and then the whole experience so can you talk a little bit about that? What's the culture in the company that's convinced you to stay there for 10 years? Because that is a little bit unusual. Yeah, it, oh, for sure, yeah. No, I realize that. And uh, 
Well, so there's definitely the culture is one thing. So Roberts was always very supportive of developing people and really investing a lot in geos to train them up and put more and more responsibility on them. I mean, it sounds very simple and, and <laughs> it's, it's just yeah. kind of an obvious thing, but yeah. I see it more and more with, with a lot of these exploration companies out there that geos are really just treated like a tap. You turn them on and off. Yeah, they're a commodity that yeah, you get rid of. Exactly. And, you... and, and so you have these logging geos and they're kind of siloed into that position. They're really not part of the bigger process of why we're doing this and why we drilled this hole. They're just uh, logging the 200 meters every day that's coming in and they're just trying to keep up with it and they have no idea what and it goes into the quality of the work is not that good then obviously they're not vested in it they don't take ownership in the project they don't feel pride in in the accomplishments and all that and um do you think that buys loyalty as well if you give a little bit to someone so that that's what i was going to say is that when you feel that the company is really grooming you to develop you and gives you all these opportunities to grow and then you're you're also more apt to stay loyal and then yeah i mean why would i move on like i want to diversify in terms of commodities or, or whatever then i have the opportunity there that i can discuss that freely that you know hey i'd like to do a bit more of 3d modeling can i get exposed to that or can i do more of the due diligence type stuff and so there was always this very free flowing and also the trust in the geos so up to this day like we we're always listening to the geos and on the ground like you're the guys that see the rocks and some of the best discoveries that fenelon were made at this gold project that we're working on right now were made because the geo that was logging or, you know said this this is looking really good like i think we should have another hole overcutting it or something like that and then boom that turned into 140 grams over seven meters and this culture of really making everybody feel part of the team and 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 you have the sense that you can be instrumental in building a successful story and yeah personally like i say even just this broken hammer story so i was able to follow it along it's not very typical for a geologist to be able to see it go from a concept or just a new discovery to actually mined out open pit and I was even there for the rehab part of it. I was overseeing the planting of trees and, and like the grass. <laughs> Maybe it isn't important for everybody, but for me it was very important to to be part of these stories and bring something to fruition and really see that my work is accounts to something and I can really see the effect of my work and I can be instrumental in building a successful company. And obviously there were times when I was wondering like should I move on or something like that. But now, in hindsight, you know, especially this last couple of years have been just amazing for all of us. We've done wonders with the company and it's really nice to see it now come to fruition. The way that you're describing it is that you try to make every cog in the whole process try to do as much as they can. We talk about this thing where companies hire a lot of geologists and they don't invest anything in them, so they don't get anything in return. And it's kind of like this self-feeding cycle where they go, well, these guys aren't doing anything. It's like, well, you're not really giving them anything either from that point. Yeah, and then I, I know of several companies there where there is this culture that geos are just there to log the core and this other guy is planning the drill holes and the other guy is looking at the assays and modeling. Sometimes logging geos are not even allowed to see the assays and it's not a healthy environment because then they're really just there for the paycheck. And then are you surprised that they don't have any ownership on things? Well, and, then, and, and of course, then the geos are going to jump ship and then they're going to do these short gigs because if there's really nothing to stay there for, 
then of course I'm going to go, wow, Greenland sounds exciting. Let's go there now. And then, oh, there's this project in Chile. I want to go there now, which is nice to build kind of uh, experience in terms of different areas and gives you that type of experience. But I think, you know, all these geos get stuck in sort of that same level position where they're always logging geos or always exploration geos or project geos. And they never really see other parts of the business, whether it's production or whether it's business development or, or some of the other stages, because they can never advance to more senior roles because the company doesn't feel the loyalty. But of course, yeah, maybe the company also didn't really provide that environment where you, you really want to stay there. So when you took all these roles, did you have a plan to take all of them or did you take opportunities as they come by? The latter, yeah. When I was doing that resource estimate, I didn't plan that tomorrow I'm going to work at my manager at the open pit. So because I'm this sort of exploration guy that really likes new adventures and new challenges. And I was bugging the VPXs, you know, even when I was a project geo, that, to tell me about the other projects. What are we doing there? And like, what are we, why are we drilling those holes? And so I always wanted to kind of learn the bigger picture of why we're doing things and not just be good at what I'm doing in the field and, and really know my project area, but understand the, the bigger business decisions and strategy and all that. But I didn't have absolutely any kind of a plan of where I want to take my career to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always knew that exploration is really where I want to be. And like we said, I am more of a technical guy, but I don't really have a five-year plan where I'm going to start my startup and I'm going to be a CEO of this company or whatever. And you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't have this planned out like that. So one of the downsides of taking new opportunities and things like that is that you might get things wrong. How do you face those? Because I think that's probably something that stops people from taking on new roles. If I'm an exploration geologist, I don't want to do resource geology because I might not be good at it or I might make mistakes. So how do you deal with that, like you personally, but also maybe comment on like how the, the Wallbridge deals with it, because they're also taking a risk in making <laughs> you a, a resource geologist, right? I don't know. I mean, it, obviously it doesn't happen from one day to the other, and but you just got to feel out people's skill sets and interests. And that's why I also in the team, like, I don't want to tell people like, okay, we want you to model these faults and you know, get it done. And because if that person is not interested in structural geology or doesn't have an aptitude to recognize structures in the core and all that, then it doesn't make any sense. So you got to find what sort of people's strengths are and, and, and uh, what motivates yeah, them what motivates them and give them those opportunities. And again, like sometimes geos are just transferred back and forth within the company without really asking them like, like, do you even want to do that? Or what are you interested in? What skills do you want to develop further? And at Wabbage, and you know, myself now as, as leading that team, I, you know, I'm definitely trying to make sure uh, people are happy and they're challenged and they can develop their skills. Being afraid of these new positions. Yeah, obviously, like I had to think about that, my manager role. Like it wasn't something like, oh, yeah, let's do it. I had to think about it a few days, what other implications, and I didn't have much people management experience either. So there's still sometimes you're thinking about the language barriers a little bit as well. English is still not my first language. And then, of course, you're dealing with some French people as well. And dealing with contractors, it's always a different dynamics, different mentality. And especially if English is not your first language and you didn't grow up in Canada uh, riding skidoos and you're not the biggest hockey fan, you know, there's some of these cultural things, then it's hard to necessarily connect and for example with 
with minors or but actually i find that i did end up finding that much easier than i thought so like when i was doing that mine managing role or working with drillers i have a much easier time communicating and discussing with them than sometimes with some of the suit people in Toronto, you know. <laughs> we have still more in common with miners and drillers and, and guys out in the field. And so You're a lot closer yeah, to them than yeah, you are. But initially I was a bit worried about that. Is that going to be a difficulty or not? So when you manage people, like, I mean, you said you had to kind of learn those skills. You know, one of the things that I've often seen in, in organizations is that when people are technically minded, it's hard for them to let go of things when they become managers. Yeah, I think we all have that. And uh, yeah, I'm the first one to admit that I hope I'm not micromanaging things. And I'm sure uh, a project deal is listening to this later. They're going to go, oh, this is bullshit. <laughs> so no, like I, I definitely put a lot of responsibility on the guys and run with it. And I don't want to tell you how to do it and, and all that. Yeah. And I really want them to come up with good ideas. And they're the ones that are facing those problems there from day to day and they got to figure out solutions. So I don't want to be the one telling them uh, how to do it. Obviously, there's a strategy that we want to follow and, and these, this is sort of the mandate that we want to expand this here or find that or the day-to-day -day stuff I don't want to have to manage for them. And that's, again, a trust thing. Like if you put a lot of trust in these guys, even though they're 26-year-olds, then they're like, oh, I'm given all this opportunity and I can run with it. And then I can come up with my ideas of how I would want to do this. And of course, they still run it by me. But then, like I say, I, I trust a lot in their in their judgment. The reason why I asked that question is because I think I haven't run the same amount of teams you have. But one of the things I found difficult is that in some way, you have to kind of make yourself redundant as a manager in some ways. And I think that's a challenge. Of course, yeah, we all face that, that I can do this better than the other person or whatever. And But then you can't do everything yourself. And it, it is good to become redundant and, and say that, okay, I don't need to worry about this anymore. And they can really take care of it. There are things that I don't want to let go of, which is, like I say, some of these technical things. I mean, I'm still drafting a lot of our press release figures because it actually gives me a good opportunity to digest the information, work with the assays and, you know, plot it up and, and really see how things are shaping up. And I know the drill hole names by by heart, like I, I know which hole hit what, because I want to be involved in, in that. It's partly because that way I can tell the story much better to upper management or investors, or it's much more credible because I actually... You still have some skin in the game, essentially, right? You still have some involvement. Exactly. And I don't lose track of the actual data. But yeah, so some of these things I just want to still be involved in and, and keep it as well. I want to see the intersections myself visually, like actually go to site. And it's one thing to get the quick logs or, or get the assays. And then, yeah, you kind of have it in your mind that, yeah, this is a shear zone that's probably going this way. And if you're there and you see the core, then it's much better. Like I'm a pretty visual guy. So do you struggle to figure out which things you want to still control and which things you want to let go? I mean, a lot of it depends on your team, I guess. Yeah, I think obviously I'm trying to keep the fun stuff from this. <laughs> yeah, that's a, and offload all the crap stuff to everyone else. <laughs> no, like in the position that I'm in now, there's a lot of work that I'm not necessarily trained in or not necessarily enjoy. A lot of HR or the administrative side of things, administrative things, which that's not why I became a geologist, right? That's not really doing much for me. We need to do, get it done to run the business. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, so that's why I still want to do some of the fun stuff. That's why I want to be involved in, in a lot of that. So one of the things that I wanted to ask is like in a tough market, it is pretty tough to be in a junior when you can't raise money and, and things like that. So how do you motivate yourself during those times? Because it is, yeah, it could be quite a tough time to be part of. 
Yeah, and this comes back to uh, Robert's creativeness and in, in, in always finding money somehow. And like, so some of these JVs, for example, so like they really brought us through the worst years in the industry. So we didn't have to. So we still had pretty healthy budgets actually on on a lot of these projects. So because there were these earning commitments, work commitments, where they still had to spend a million or two million a year. So compared to a lot of juniors, we actually had quite healthy budgets even in those tough years. But yeah, true. I mean, sometimes you don't have much budget and you have more targets than you can drill. For example, like for quite a few months, I was basically going through, as part of this due diligence as well, like I was basically just going through all the deposits and the Abitibi and really understanding them and like, what's the geology, read up on the reports, papers and everything. And so, and it, which was, again, nice. like, so, you know, at, at Wabbage, we were able to accommodate that, right? They had the money to fund that. Exactly. Let's say a junior doesn't have always the money to for a guy to sit around and read academic papers or and, and technical reports or production records. So I think the company realizes the value that there is in that. It gives it all that background knowledge that I can then use for the due diligences and then, then you know evaluating project. But yeah, sometimes it's tough when you're there for a few months and you haven't drilled a single drill hole and then well, you know it'd be nice to uh, <laughs> do something more active. But like I say, because of these JVs and, and this open pit, like I said, the broken hammer, again, 2014-15, a lot of companies weren't able to raise any money. So we just went ahead and started an open pit <laughs> and uh, let's, let's mine this thing. And yeah. then it was sort of a creative alternative way of financing. As an outsider, yeah, even though I did work in Warwick, one of the things I do remember is that they did have this capacity to be creative in the way they did a lot of things. We mentioned how they hired students to come in and work, the way like you're describing how they finance the company during tough times. And I think there has to be this kind of interplay that companies have to be a little bit creative creative to try to find ways. Exactly. And then obviously it, it's good for the company to keep afloat and stay relevant. If you don't have any news for two years, then yeah, you can close, you can close <laughs> yeah. this job. So it, there was always news flowing, there was activities, and it was good for us too, because you didn't feel like you're kind of uh, stagnant in this thing, just waiting for the market to go up, and then they, then I can again have some activity. So we always did something and moved this open pit ahead, or uh, we review projects, pick up some stuff, or we spin out, we created spin out company, we picked up projects in BC, and then I was spun out into a separate junior. It wasn't the best time, best timing. It was done in like 2011, 12, and then it was downhill a little bit after that. So again, just these creative ways of keeping the team together, keep the story going. And uh... and I think the key there is keep the team together. You look at like successful sports teams or things like that. They always seem to have that the people play with each other a lot and then they get better and better over time. That's why also right now at this Fanalon project, we can drill year round. And now we have six rigs turning basically the whole year. So there's no reason why we need to be seasonally lumpy, but we also make an effort in like, okay, let's be stagnant and consistent so we can keep the core team together. Yeah. And you get better and better at doing the same things then yeah. as well. Yeah. So we're drilling you know, 10,000 meters a month right now. We could add three more drills in the winter and then you don't get a lot of drilling done quickly and then lay off half the staff and then again, do it in the winter next year. But then... The thing is, training up geos takes so many months and, and well, even years to really get full value out of them. 
So it's much better if you're more consistent and you can keep a good core team together. I think maybe you get buy-in from the other side as well from people. Yeah. The next kind of thing that I want to talk to you about is that you've stayed with one company a long time and done different things. There's the other model, which is you go do different things with different companies over the same time. In your opinion, what do you think has been the benefit of you staying with one company for a while? Yeah, so I think both are pretty viable models and then whatever works for you or and, and some of it is also obviously driven by subjective factors uh, family or relationships and, and all that in my case as well like with my wife she's a geologist too and we're trying to compromise always so that it doesn't turn into a long distance relationship which of course doesn't work out for a lot of the geologists so some of it is just compromises like that yeah, the benefits, we kind of talked about to be able to be instrumental in building success story over the years. Like I, I did have a lot of second guessing, should I really move on now? Or, or uh, I mean, Sudbury isn't even the city itself. That's not your dream destination usually that this is where I want to settle down, right? So we had to sort of grow on us. And for a long time, like we were missing the mountains, like both of us, my wife and I are, are, are avid you know, hikers and being in the mountains. So there's not many of those around at Sudbury. And of course, missing the European culture, family, those, those sort of things. So I was looking for a while for, for opportunities in, in Europe to maybe move back and be a bit closer to home. So obviously you, you get these thoughts of, you know, is this really, you know, should I, like for a few years, we're really sort of on the verge of being successful with Wobbers. Like for many years, you could feel that there's this really good thing starting here and it's a really good dynamic team and we get these different opportunities, but somehow we missed out on a couple things, like a couple acquisitions, for example, didn't work out, but you always had that feeling that I think next year is really going to be where we're going to get a breakthrough and, and we're going to make it. And which finally came now in like 2017, 18 is when we really took off and then this last year has been really an amazing success story but took me nine ten years of loyalty and, and being with the company to actually be part of this right as vp exploration you know i'm very instrumental in achieving these successes and, and and being able to do that so so this is kind of the reason why we wanted to have this conversation with you is that it's quite a nice parallel you and i started at the same time you have taken one path and i've taken the complete opposite path where i've jumped from one opportunity to another and i think this is a, a thing that a lot of people in this part of their career struggle with like how long should you stay in a place oh and there's no recipe for it and it, yeah like i was ready to move on you know three years ago or four years ago but then things just didn't work out that way or whatever and then suddenly we got into this fell on gold and this discovery story. so now i'm really happy that i stayed on but yeah i mean if you're passionate and, and you're ambitious to have an amazing career and really make a difference you can do it different ways like you can do it like you did trying all kinds of different things different company sizes different continents and that's really good if it works for you don't get stuck in if you're at a company that you don't enjoy and you don't really get to see that culture this support and like i said this these opportunities then don't just stick around there because it's convenient. So definitely try to take all these opportunities that are out there and then and, and, and move on. Like in my case, I did see a lot of these good opportunities in-house within the 
within the company, so I didn't really have to move on. And I think that's a good point. If I look back and say maybe a lot of the times that I did move on, I think there were points where like the opportunities you had probably dried up or the company maybe lost a little bit of loyalty or trust. And so now I didn't feel that relationship was probably right. And I think those are probably the points that like people end up moving from. Yeah. I mean, there are good reasons for staying with a company and there are bad reasons. Like a lot of major companies, people end up staying there, geos end up staying there for 20 years because it's convenient and and there's good benefits and it's a nice cozy job and um, i mean i think which is okay for them right yeah exactly and my decisions to stay stick with this company was because i felt that we're on to something we can be successful and i can actually be part of it and i can be instrumental in it like i'm not just yeah a, you're just not logging core for 10 years and i think this is maybe part of the reason for doing this episode is that i think a lot of people coming into our industry i feel maybe struggle with this because i struggled with this as well that what should i be doing in three years what should i be doing in five years and it is hard to i think plan yeah you can't you, i don't think you can really plan it in this industry like especially with the cyclicity of it and and well and then just all these opportunities out there but there are a lot of exciting opportunities out there and, and especially for us explorers it all sounds very glamorous oh yeah let's go up to baffin island or let's let's explore <laughs> yeah, in a... png and it, it is amazing and that's one of the reasons why you're becoming an exploration geologist because you get to work at these awesome places so it's perfectly fine to move on and, and do those things so take your path and my path. I think the commonality is that we both try to diversify our skill set along the yeah. way. Maybe that's the important thing you should probably focus on, not how you do it or what path you take, but the fact that what you should try to do is diversify your skills because otherwise you might fall into these traps where you're someone that gets stuck as a logging geologist for 10 years or something like yeah. that. You see a lot of exploration geologists that they're really good at what they're doing so they're really awesome at mapping, produce beautiful maps and, and very efficient or they're, they're really awesome at logging core, but they don't necessarily understand the bigger picture of how will this turn into a producing mine? Is this always just going to be a moose pasture? And it's nice to have a good intersection, but if it's right beside a glacier or if it's at a First Nation border, then it's not going to move on to be a mine. So all of these things necessarily, uh, you don't understand it if you haven't had some of these roles where you were exposed to these positions. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think getting that holistic view on the industry, understanding what an engineer wants or understanding what a resource geologist wants or understanding what investors want, I think these are quite nice things. Definitely caution a lot of the young geos to to just move on because it's it sounds more interesting or more exciting or because yeah new is always it, it always sounds more interesting and especially in this time like us millennials yeah the attention span is short and there's always <laughs> something more interesting and you always need this kind of uh, dopamine rush that, that, that <laughs> yeah the euphoria that comes from doing new things exactly like oh i'm gonna explore here now and i'm gonna chopping into this place and that's very exciting but you also kind of have to sit back and think about it the company you need to appreciate like what you have right now with the company like are you being appreciated and is it like is the culture okay and do i see myself like growing here and then actually learning additional skills and additional different aspects of the industry then you should maybe think about oh maybe i should be loyal and i should talk to my managers and express my interest that i'm interested in 3d modeling i want to learn more about production geology can you put me in for a few months into a bgo position because i really want to learn that part of the industry so if you can do these kind of things within the company and you have managers that are supporting it 
and and they're willing to give you all these opportunities and, and invest in you, then I don't think there's necessary reason to move on. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So we're getting close to the end of our interview. So since you're an avid listener, you know the two questions that are coming up. So first one, so what's something that you think needs to die in our industry? Yeah, I think just going back to the culture, there's a lot of problems in our industry, of course, in, in terms of culture, one being diversity. So it's a bit of a cliche, but most companies are still controlled by old white men. And there are you know, a lot of good success stories with young managers and, and female leaders and all that. So I think we need more of that. And some of the other culture that kind of needs to die out is is this promotional aspect of especially the junior industry and in particularly in Canada where it doesn't help our credibility and our reputation as an industry. And that's some of the reasons why there's often problems with funding. And especially right now, the mining industry does have a bit of a better reputation that we're wasting a lot of money and not really getting any results. And part of it is because there's a, this culture of promoting things that may not be successful down the line. Exactly. And, and yeah, I don't know how, how about Australia. Like it's, I think it's a little bit different there. But in Canada, we, I think we're struggling with, with a lot of these juniors that are promoting stuff that just is not going to work out. And it's wasting a lot of money. And it doesn't create value. And it undermines the credibility of the whole industry as a viable investment opportunity, right? Yeah. I think some companies might benefit in the short term themselves, but in the long term, the industry loses out because we are behaving not, not right. And, and there's a whole new set of investors now out there, all the millennials. And so we're competing with Elon Musk and all the tech companies. And we have to prove, I think, that, that we're credible guys that are doing good business here and very important in the in, in for society and we can create value and you guys should support, support us yeah that's uh no, no i think that's a great point so conversely what do you think is something that we need to maintain at all cost something that's fundamental to our dna yeah i think a lot of people already said it in the show but we need to keep doing geology and we need to be boots on the ground and and however much talk there is about ai and and all the fancy technology out there and and core scanning and all that stuff which is very useful and, and a lot of that stuff is very innovative and it's going to help us a lot but we can't lose focus from actually being out there and, and seeing the rocks ourselves so you know young geos need to gain all that experience in logging field geology to see the rocks because otherwise you know all that technology is, is going to be useless and, and it's not going to help you in the, in the long run so i think we need to keep exploring <laughs> and we need to look at rocks and because i see that tendency a lot of the young geos now and, and we have that problem in the, in, in the team as well that logging core is perceived as a role that uh, you know like yeah we have to log core because it's part of the job and it has to be done but they really don't see the value in it and they want to do more glamorous stuff like 3D modeling and, and everything. But this, you're not going to be successful in 3D modeling and resource estimating and, and that if you haven't put in the time and actually see a lot of rocks. I think that's a really important point. And unless you understand the context of what you're looking at, what you're trying to do in the modeling, it's a moot point. So I think that's a great point to end on. Thanks a lot for joining us, Attila. Yeah, thanks, Amadi. Have a good year. <laughs> you too. Exploration Radio is brought to you by Ahmad Salim and Steve Beresford. This episode was produced by Ahmad Salim and Michael Carter, edited by Humayu Mir and Kirsty Sheeran, and recorded live at the 2020 PDAC conference in Toronto, Canada. If you would like to know more about this podcast, then check out explorationradio.com, or you can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. If you like this podcast, then consider becoming a sponsor to help us continue producing more of this content. 
You can email us on info at explorationradio.com to find out more about sponsorship packages. Until next time, let's keep exploring.